Hello and welcome back to Deconstructing the Bible. My name is Jason Steffenhagen. I'm the Associate Minister at The Well, United Methodist Church in Rosemont, Minnesota. And we are going to embark upon a short Advent season of Deconstructing the Bible. We're going to take a look at the four weeks of Advent that lead up to Christmas Eve and Christmas Day and the celebration of the birth of Christ. And Advent is this beautiful, challenging, and I think grounding time in the church calendar. It's actually the beginning of the church calendar, which is kind of fascinating. You would think maybe the church calendar starts at the beginning of the year or starts maybe on Christmas Day, but it actually starts right now with Advent. And it's out of a season of anticipation, a season of waiting, a season of preparation that we begin the journey. It's almost like the church calendar is trying to tell us something about the human experience, that it's birthed in the midst of anticipation, like the Spirit is hovering over the waters of chaos, waiting for the voice of God to speak existence into reality. It's almost like the people have been toiling away for hundreds of years in Egypt, waiting for the Exodus, waiting for God to move. It's almost like the people who have found themselves after exile being back in Jerusalem and in Judea, but they are still under the boot and under the occupation of Rome, and they are waiting in anticipation of the coming Messiah. Maybe our lives, when we feel like it's not all adding up or that we're in a season of challenge or difficulty, maybe instead of seeing that as the aberration, maybe instead of seeing that as the place that we have to run from, maybe maybe those are seasons where new beginnings are birthed. Maybe these are the seasons in which God is trying to prepare us for what God is up to. I think Advent is this beautiful season where, for me, Growing up and as I was starting a family and a a young man, you know, the calendar turned and it was post Thanksgiving and and it was time to decorate the house and time to bring out all the stops and to see all the red and the green and the white and just to go crazy and to enjoy the the Christmas festivities. It was kind of like the party started early, right? The party began as soon as the calendar turned and there was school parties and church parties and caroling and different things going on in the neighborhood. And it was just one thing after the other leading up to this beautiful time of family and celebration at Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. And and then you get to Christmas break where you have that week in between Christmas and New Year's where you just get to play and hang out and spend time with people. And it's this beautiful way of, of celebrating. And it lasts an entire month. And There is so much to love about that type of celebration, but I got to be honest, in the last couple of years, I've started to do a little bit more research and learn a little bit more about this Advent season of waiting and anticipation and preparation. And one of the ways that people have expressed this throughout kind of history and in different uh, spaces and places and different times, there's been a move towards calm a move towards embracing the darkness in a way. Not embracing the darkness as embracing evil, but embracing the darkness 
that naturally comes with the rhythm of the sun being in the sky for a less amount of time in the Northern Hemisphere. I mean, it gets dark around 4.30 in the afternoon. And by the time we're done with dinner at about 5.30, 6 o'clock, it's basically pitch black outside. And you, you better wear a reflector vest or a flashlight if you're going to go take the dog for a walk. And so we are in this season where it's almost like creation itself is saying, hey, calm down right? The harvest is over. There's no more work to do. It's time to attend to your soul. It's time to attend to your inner being. You need to slow down here. And typically in the Western world or in the American world, or even in the church world, we speed things up and we get excited and we do more and do more and do more. And so what can we do to actually slow down? You know, one of the practices that my family and I have done is we've started getting a Christmas tree. And then instead of decorating it full tilt with all of the you know ornaments and all of the holly and everything that goes on it and all the you know wonderful decorations that we have accumulated over the years that mean something to us, one of the things that we've done is we've just put the tree up and put lights on it and let that be enough for the living room. We light some candles, maybe put on a lamp so we can read. But then we just slow down and enjoy the stillness of a bare tree with a little bit of light lighting up the dark and just letting that kind of be the calm space that we get to live in for some time. And I think this, as I mentioned, resonates with the biblical narrative of God birthing beginnings out of chaos or out of darkness, right? Like what is one of the first things that God creates on day one, God creates light and separates the light from the dark, right? What is Jesus called? The light of the world. You know, the angels are proclaiming the birth of the Christ when? In the midst of the darkness of night to the shepherds. I mean, there's something that is birthed in darkness that we are being called to in this story. Even the beginning of Matthew's gospel, this odd chapter one, where the majority of that chapter is the genealogy of Jesus reaching back generation upon generation, and it's echoing this long history through which Jesus is being brought into. And it's fascinating because there's a few people in that story that we wouldn't expect to see because the genealogy is mostly male-dominated except for a handful of women. There's a handful of women in the genealogy of Jesus that we wouldn't have expected to see. And those women tell us a story. Those women tell us something about the story and the space that we are in. The story of Tamar, the story of Ruth, the story of Rahab, the story of Bathsheba, the story of Mary. There are women whose stories that are full of pain and full of difficulty and trial, whose stories are being brought to our attention as we anticipate the birth of Christ, they're telling us something about what it means to be human. They're telling us something about what the birth of the Christ child is all about. Reconciling, 
humanity, bringing humanity together, moving things towards God's justice. And so this first week of Advent, the key word, and we're going to have a key word each week, the key word here is hope. Instead of turning to the Gospels, one of the expectations in this first week is that we actually turn to the prophets. We turn to the prophets because they are reminding us and foretelling us of what we should know is coming. That there is something going on within culture and history and within humanity at that time and in all times, in all people and in individuals that is telling us something about the need for hope. The need for hope. And not just hope as an anticipation of something to come, but a hope that becomes a present reality. A knowing hope. A hope that moves us from just optimism, but to a place of true resonance a place of grounding. I'm grounded in hope. I know the story's not over is a way of articulating what hope is all about. It's a way of saying, I know this story's not over yet. It might feel dark, but I know what's coming. And so the prophets do an amazing job of pointing us to the reality of the situation and how we might need some optimism, but we are grounded in the the realization that God is still up to something, that God is still at work, that God is still going to say something, that God is still going to do something in our midst. And so the prophets of all people in scripture are the ones who are pointing us to that hope. about the prophets. One of my favorite authors on the prophets is Walter Brueggemann, and he wrote this dynamic book called The Prophetic Imagination, where he talks about the goal of the prophet is to do primarily two different things. The goal of the prophet is to criticize and energize. Criticize and energize. The way I would put it is the prophet's going to be honest and then hopeful honest and then hopeful, criticizing and energizing. What does Brueggemann mean by that? The prophet is going to call reality what it really is. The prophet is going to be critical of what is really going on because most of the time, power and systems like to protect the status quo. They like to keep things moving along for those who are in power. They don't want things to change. They don't want the marginalized and the press to somehow get power because then they think they might be out of power. They might not get what they think they've earned or what they've aspired to. And so they want things to stay the way they are. But what prophetic work does is it names the injustices of that system. It names the injustices of what's going on in that moment. And so we see this throughout the prophets. Prophets aren't just telling us that Jesus is coming. I mean, they do that, right? There are passages in the prophets where we can see them talking about the coming Messiah. But the majority of the prophets, 90 some percent of the prophets are not foretelling Christ. The majority of the prophets are speaking to the people at the time about the way that the systems and the power structures are not in alignment with God. 
They are saying that there is something broken that needs fixings. There's something that is not for the widow and the orphan, for the marginalized, for the alien. It is broken and it's not working and it's not in alignment with God and we need to face that reality. And I could not imagine that the prophets wouldn't look at our day and say, there needs to be some criticizing. Now, we might like to call it constructive criticism, but there needs to be some critical looks at what goes on in our world today. There needs to be some reality, some honesty about what goes on. I love what Brueggemann says in his book. He says, perhaps you are like me. You're so enmeshed in this reality that another way is nearly unthinkable. The dominant history of that period, he's talking about the period of Israel, like the dominant history of our own time, it consists in, and he says, briefcases and limousines and press conferences. Now he's writing this uh, almost a generation ago. So you could fast forward to our time and say that in our time, it consists in Zoom meetings, in smartphones, and in press conferences, and new weaponry systems, he writes. And that is not a place where much dancing happens and where no groaning is permitted. Because what he says is that in order to change the way things are, we're going to need to do a little grief work. We're going to need to enter into the dark. We're going to need to enter into the place where we can actually face our souls and ask the question, who am I? And is this the way that things are supposed to be? We got to groan a little bit because eventually we need to dance a little bit. And we can't do that if all we're focused on is upholding the status quo and getting bigger and bigger and bigger and accumulating more and more and more. Instead, we have to be honest that this system isn't working. Brueggemann goes on to say that the, prof- that the prophet engages in futuring fantasy. I love that, futuring fantasy. The prophet does not ask if the vision that the prophet has can be implemented for questions of implementation are of no consequence until the vision can be imagined. Until the vision can be imagined. Do we have the capacity for imagination in our world anymore? Brueggemann has this unbelievable prophetic line where he says, our culture is competent to implement almost anything and to imagine almost nothing. I don't think a truer line could be spoken about our world today. We can do almost anything, but we can't imagine the world changing. So how can we implement change if we can't even imagine that it can? That's the first part of the prophetic imagination. That's the first part of the work of the prophet, to be real about what's going on. But the second part of the prophet is to say, but that's not all. Because God is up to something. God is in this. God is calling on us to participate in the reconciliation, the renewal, the restoration, in the resurrection of all things. God is not letting us settle for this. God will see justice happen like a river flowing, flooding into our lives. God will overwhelm us with love, whether we are ready for it or not, whether we are able to see it or not. God is up to something, but God is calling on us to participate. And that idea, that energizing is where hope is found. And I love what Brueggemann says here. He says, hope is the refusal to accept the reading of reality, which is the majority opinion. 
and one does that only at great political and existential risk. If you are going to hope, if you are going to hope, you may butt heads. You may encounter resistance with the majority reading and expectation of the culture at large. You may butt heads with the status quo. People may not like that you are seemingly threatening their power and their privilege and their position. Why? Because hope, as Brueggemann says, is subversive, for it limits the grandiose pretension of the present, daring to announce that the present to which we have all made commitments is now called into question. Hope is calling into question the way things are because hope believes that there's a better way possible. Hope believes that there's a way for the marginalized to actually no longer be marginalized, that they have voice and they have place and they have the ability to speak into the systems of our world. We can only do this work if we embrace the slowing down, if we embrace the darkness, if we slow down and stop the rush of our lives and we sit and we examine our souls, we examine our lives and our choices and we say, am I ready? Am I ready to be participating in the birth of Christ? Am I ready to help usher Christ into the world? Am I ready? Am I capable? Am I prepared to do the work of incarnating Christ to a world that needs more Christ, more love, more grace and hope? Am I ready to participate in what God is up to? And that takes embracing the slowing down and it takes embracing hope. Not simply an optimistic hope, but a hope grounded in our constructive criticizing, our being real, our being honest, and then holding on to a place of hope that God is at work. God is up to something. And we know God is up to something because we know this story. We know what God does at creation. We know what God does through Moses and leading them out of Egypt. We know what happens to Mary and the disciples. We know what the Holy Spirit brings and the power of resurrection. We know what God can do. We just need to slow down so we can embrace it, so we can participate. We must be people of hope. So let's hope together this Advent season. Thanks for joining me on Deconstructing the Bible. Thank you.